Welcome back to Intervals, everyone. We are a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. This is Christopher Brick, and I am pleased to also be welcoming back this time Matt Getz for a bit more discussion about his work on the Barbary Wars and the U.S. home front in the early 19th century. If you haven't listened to that lecture yet, it is just one episode behind this one in the queue and very much worth your time, so check it out. And now, our Q&A with Matt. Enjoy. Getz, welcome to the podcast. Oh, wait, few Getz, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're happy to have you here as well. And I'm also happy, as always, to have my wonderful, marvelous co-host, Professor Carrie Yakota, joining us direct from the University of Colorado, Denver. Welcome, Carrie. Hi. Hi, hello. I'm really excited to be here for another taping of Intervals. Excited to have you here, too. What did you think of the lecture, and what do you have to ask? Well, I thought that we'd start by asking you, Matthew, to share your intellectual autobiography and what led you to the work you're doing and maybe to the topic that you presented to us in your lecture. Sure. So I sort of stumbled upon my topic by accident. I went to graduate school as just an early Americanist. I didn't really know what I wanted to study beyond that. But in my master's program, I took a research seminar that was titled Islam in the World. You had to produce a research paper, and it could be about any topic you wanted, so long as it somehow involved Islam. And so as an early Americanist, I initially thought, oh, boy, what am I going to do? I don't, you know, I can't think of any topics or early America really interacts with Islam. And then I thought of, oh, I'll do the Barbary Wars. And I, I didn't know much about it other than the sort of basic narrative, but I started reading as much about it as I could, every book I could find on it, uh, and it became more and more fascinating to me. And then the the sort of light bulb moment that I had was I was reading a letter from William Eaton, who I mentioned in the lecture. He was the American consul to Tunis. And I believe in 1799, he wrote a letter to his wife in which he started complaining about the how horrible it is that the Barbary pirates enslave Christians and how they treat them so terribly. And he went on and on. But then he said, but we really, we Americans really can't complain because it's just as bad as we treat our own African slaves. And then he said, Barbary is hell. Then again, so is the entire United States south of Maryland or something like that. And to me, that was a real aha moment where I went, wow, that's fascinating. I had, that's the first time I had seen that sort of argument put forward. Um, and so I started thinking, well, there's really something here. I should really, I should delve deeper into this. And ever since then, I've been hooked on this topic and been studying it ever since. That's great. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned um, being an early Americanist and um, that link being somewhat of a surprise to you. And I was going to ask as a follow-up just for you to talk a bit about how global perspectives have um, changed the way you looked at the research you're doing. Um, And it seems like um, early Americanists were a bit late to the so-called global party. (laughs) You know, uh, Rosemary Zagiri in her sheer presidential address, which then she published as um, a written essay in um, the JER. She's talking about the call for early Americanists and her work also is uh, exemplary in kind of widening the scope of the early Republic. And now I think it's a much more common thing, but I wondered if you could talk to the audience a bit about how um, it's this, this, this perspective has changed the way you've structured your own research? 
yeah, for a while it was really early Americanists had to be Atlantic historians, and now it's early Americanists have to be global historians. Um, and I, I believe that because even in my own research, I found that even a topic like late 18th century United States, there's so many global connections. It's already such a globalized world that if you're not at least touching upon a global history perspective, you're really not telling the full story. I, I mean, just in my own topic, if you look at you know the the, these merchant ships, these American merchant ships that are being abducted by Barbary pirates, these are really polygot clues, crews. They're not just American sailors. These are sailors from all over the world, right? There's American sailors, there's English sailors on board, there's Dutch sailors. Um, these are really multinational crews. And this is a this is really a transatlantic story. So like I said, if you're not at least delving into that topic, you're not you're not getting the full story. You brought in this 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 little anecdote about Uncle Tom's cabin. And correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm mischaracterizing this, but my understanding is that the work that you referenced sort of functioned like a template of sorts for for Harriet Beecher Stowe. Is that is that is that going too far? Or do I have that correct? So I don't know if Harriet Beecher Stowe based her book off of that. The prototype of Uncle Tom's cabin quote comes from a speech by Charles Sumner that he gave. Um, and he's he's referencing it, saying this is the prototype of Uncle Tom's cabin. Um, but I think you could say that that argument that the author, Royal Tyler, is making in that novel, The Algerian Captive, is a prototype that was copied by antebellum abolitionists. And the basic argument there is pointing out the hypocrisy of white Americans complaining about being enslaved by North Africans while simultaneously enslaving Africans themselves. It's using the Barbary Coast as a sort of mirror to reflect America's own guilt when it comes to the sin of slavery. And so in that sense, it did that became a very common argument that was copied over and over again. Not just Uncle Tom's Cabin, too. There's a lot of other novels written by antebellum abolitionists that use this basic same argument. There's one written, I think it's published in 1858, about someone from North Africa who moves to the United States hoping to escape the you know, supposed barbarism of his own land, moving to the land of liberty. He moves to New Orleans, and then he's instantly horrified by how common slavery is. And he ends up deciding to leave and go back to North Africa, thinking there's more freedom there than there is here. Um, so there was a very common template that was used over and over again. But in terms of your, your question, too, about comparative slaveries, it, it's a really big debate, actually, amongst historians who study the Barbary Wars of, do you describe Barbary slavery as slavery, or is it captivity, because compared to the type of slavery you see in New World plantations or in the American South, it is very different, right? So if you're using that as the benchmark of slavery, Barbary slavery, by comparison, seems somewhat mild, maybe, to use a, a light term. So there's a debate of, do you describe it as slavery? Do you describe it as captivity? I end up citing on the, on the side of, we should describe this as slavery, because that's the terms that they used at the time. Most Americans considered it slavery. It was legally slavery by Barbary law, um, but there is that debate. And the there are pirates in this story you're telling too. Um, for people who aren't as immersed in it, like what kinds of roles does piracy play in the commercial life, the political life, the economic situation of of the period you're working in? Because I think it, it, it it's it's a prominent part of it, right? Oh, hundred percent, yeah. And it's an important distinction too that what. The Barbary pirates, as Westerners then referred to them, they're really privateers. And the distinction is pirates are sort of, they're outlaws. They don't belong to any state. Uh, they don't adhere to any international laws. Privateers are basically, they're private 
uh, private, you know, sailors, but they're licensed by their state. They're only allowed to attack the ships of enemy nations. And they often then have to, in the case of the Barbary privateers, they have to split the proceeds with the state. Privateers were incredibly common around the Atlantic world at this time period. They were used by pretty much every Western nation, including the United States. Uh, the United States relied on privateers during the American Revolution and pretty much every war through the War of 1812, at least. They're incredibly common because you have the Atlantic world and the Mediterranean are just these vast highways of merchant ships at this time. There's thousands and thousands of ships spreading around this, including carrying some very valuable cargo. So it became a really important tool of war making by not just the Barbary states, but by European states and by the United States to send out these fleets of privateer ships to prey on the merchant marines of other countries. And it became a way to wage war on the cheap as well. It's a lot cheaper to just authorize privateers to go out and attack your enemy rather than building ships yourself and outfitting them yourself, which was a very expensive process. And as I explained in my lecture too, the idea of having a large standing Navy went against a lot of the beliefs of the early Americans like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who thought that having a big standing military was dangerous to liberty. Much better to just let these privateers go out you know, and, and do the job for you. It does show a bit of a double standard that, you know, pirates in Western imagination are hailed as somewhat of heroes and kind of folk figures, whereas North African pirates are viewed as villains roundly. I, I heard one person at one time say, you know, you're not going to see many Barbary pirate Jack Sparrows in, in Western imagination. Well, I, and I think that touches on a th recurring theme that you didn't talk about explicitly in the lecture, but as I was listening to it, um, it's about this double standard or the ironies or the conflicts and the perversity of, you know, how these, um, how in Americans who had uh, buttressed a slave system were, were criticizing people for enslavement. I mean, there was a lot of these double standards. And I think you worked with that throughout the lecture. And I was wondering if you could maybe discuss that further, just this doubling that you see throughout the talk. One of the reasons why I think it doesn't have more of an impact on ending slavery in the United States at this time is that the arguments that some anti-slavery activists are using to point out the hypocrisy of white Americans practicing slavery rest on an inherently racist argument, which is that these barbers mm -hmm. in North Africa, they're the epitome of barbarism and immorality. So if we continue to enslave Africans, we are just as bad as they are. Right? So it's an inherently racist argument. And so I don't think it did much to dent the, the racial prejudice of this era, which was the biggest ideological underpinning of slavery at the time. No, absolutely. I mean, it's clear that it's, it's the racial hierarchies that are just so entrenched by that time um, that uh, mean that these comparisons are not going to be effective in moving in a significant fashion um, the people who are pro-slavery. Um, but in terms of racial hierarchies, can you tell us a bit about um, how the Barbary states uh, figure into a sort of racialized system in the American press, say, or amongst the American intelligentsia, at least the people who are writing and talking and thinking about it? That's actually a great question because it, it's really fascinating. Americans and Europeans at this time don't seem to really know how to categorize the Barbary states into their understanding of the world and of the racial hierarchy of the era. Mm -hmm. 
because on the one hand, it's it's Africa, but it's North Africa. It's not really Sub-Saharan Africa. It's history. It brings it into the Mediterranean world, but it's its current culture in terms of the late 1700s fits it more with the Eastern world, right? With what Westerners would have called the Orient at that time. So it seems to defy easy categorization. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you have the fact that then, as of now, North Africa is an incredibly diverse place. You had uh, Arabs living there. You also had Moors. You had Turks who were often in charge of these Barbary states. You had Jews. You had a lot of Europeans living there who had, quote unquote, turned Turk and converted to Islam in order to become Barbary pirates. So these were incredibly diverse areas, which made it a lot harder for Americans to classify them as one race. So there's this real confusion of mm-hmm. Americans aren't quite sure how to classify them. But in a, in a nutshell, it's pretty clear that in all the American newspapers and the writings at the time, whatever they are, they're inferior to whites. That's sort of the, the general theme. Well, I know in my research, um, when uh, Americans encounter, say, to the Ch- Chinese, it's hard to say they're uncivilized or savage because they're going to China to get their refined goods, for instance. So they focus on them being heathens to other and demonize the Chinese people. And I was wondering how religion um, plays a part in that other uh, othering or demonizing in, in the case that you're studying. Yeah, that's a great question, too, because if you look at the writings of Americans who are traveling to the Barbary states and writing about them, it's similar to what you're describing, where they recognize that there's a degree of civilization here just based on the cities there and the ruins there as well, because the Barbary coast under Roman rule in antiquity was this really prosperous area, right? So you had all these great ruins that all these Americans are commenting on. So they're saying, well, this is partly civilized area. It has a civilized history. And then they're saying, but what happened? Because now it's this barbarous land. What happened? And so a lot of Americans come to the conclusion that it is religion. It's this, it's Islam, right? Which in their minds invaded this region, toppled the Roman empire here, replaced it with this, what they see as a sort of superstitious, violence-prone religion of Islam. And now the land's deteriorated. And now with this really productive, fertile land that used to be the breadbasket of Europe during Roman rule is now decayed and ruined and it's ruled by these oppressive people. And so you start to see some Americans talking almost like European Orientalists saying, this is really fertile land that could again become productive if it was governed by a more civilized people or eventually if more industrious Europeans settled this land instead. You uh, mentioned too that the, the, of the sectarian populations who are there, right, in North Africa, I mean, there are not just Muslims, but also like Jews and Turks and the like. What was there any anti-Semitism um, kind of written into this this interplay between kind of East and West and ideas about who belongs and who doesn't and who's an outsider and who's an insider? There was a lot of anti-Semitism, yes. If you look at the writings of some of the American diplomats sent to the Barbary Coast to try to negotiate with the Barbary pirates, a lot of their writings contain a lot of anti-Semitism, partly because the Jewish community in the Barbary states were often the, the bankers. They were, had access to capital, which the American diplomats needed in order to pay bribes and pay tribute treaties to the Barbary states. So you have American diplomats having to rely on the Jews in Barbary, and it leads to a lot of anti-Semitic talk. 
there's a really interesting case actually of uh, an American diplomat named Mordecai Noah, who was appointed by the James Madison administration to be consul to Tunis in 1813, I believe. And they chose him specifically because he was Jewish. And so the Madison administration thought, well, he's probably better equipped to negotiate with the Jews of Barbary than say any Protestant diplomat we might send. And so they sent him there to do it. Mordecai Noah ended up publishing a book about his time in Barbary. And he goes on and on about how sad he was to see how oppressed the Jewish community was in Barbary. He said, it's horrible. And he actually says, I wish some European power would come and colonize this region so that it could relieve the Jews of this in this area of some of their burden and some of their suffering. And then when he gets back to the United States, he, he tries, it doesn't end up succeeding, but he tries briefly to form a sort of community in upstate New York for Jews as a sort of Jewish uh, uh, exodus area where they can go live free of oppression. Uh, so I think his time on the Barbary Coast, seeing the suffering of the Jews there at the hands of what he saw as these Turkish despots, really influenced him. Are you relying mostly on like American sources? And if so, how do you kind of bring in other voices from either that space over there, Jewish, Muslim, Turk, what have you? That's a great question. It's actually sad, but there aren't that many sources written about the Barbary Wars produced by the Barbary people. Uh, one of my favorite sources to use are Barbary captivity narratives, which are stories written by the American captives who were kidnapped by the Barbary pirates, written about their time in Barbary and their sufferings at the hands of their captors. Um, they're based really closely off of Indian captivity narratives that were really popular in the United States where you know, settlers were kidnapped by Indians and then wrote about their sufferings. These are great sources because these captives are very open about how they feel about their captivity. They're, they're very expressive, but they're incredibly biased, obviously. And they're obviously, they're also manufactured sources in that some of them were authentic. They're written by captives. Some of them are completely made up by American publishers. Some of them that were authentic were then edited by publishers and changed, and they would take excerpts from, you know, Enlightenment era European sources, and they would just copy and paste them in. So they're very hard to use. Um, but I found if you piece them together with newspaper coverage and the writings of diplomats, which are a little bit more, uh, less colorful, I'll say, um, you can get a, a somewhat more accurate picture. And for my own research, I'm really looking at how the Barbary Wars affected American politics, American culture. And so these sources are very helpful. Even if they show a biased view, they still show what the American people were thinking about the Barbary Wars and what they're learning about them, right? If, they're, if people are reading these sources, they're ingesting this information. So it's very helpful in that regard. Yeah, I, I was going to ask a similar question. So I'm glad, Chris, you mentioned the sources. Um, I was going to ask about the rate of literacy because for your average um, sailor, you talk about how much how much um, correspondence was produced or the the large love. And I was thinking to myself, oh, I didn't know they were all ready to write. They they caught the right captives because you said there were several letters and um, things were being published in the newspapers and it was going back and forth. So that was one question. And then just to um, talk a bit further about getting the other side of the equation. And I think that that goes back to my interest in global perspectives and just thinking about how American historians or historians that are defined as working on American history. So not your national identity, but the, your subject matter and how you've been trained, 
how do we integrate the other side? And um, one question that I've been very interested in in my career has been this transition from colony to nation and how um, it affected Americans. And um, so we know that after um, revolution was uh, declared, so you you use the date 1776, Americans lose the protection of the British Empire. How did the Barbary states know about that? How much did they know about the difference between Americans and the British after um, the Declaration of Independence or or after revolution was won or after Americans are free? How do they how are they getting their news and information? And how did they see these newcomers? How did they perceive of Americans? So we're talking about how Americans perceive of the world. How did the world perceive of this newfound country of rebels? Both great questions. In terms of the, your first question, I was honestly surprised too to see how many of these captive sailors are writing. So I would have thought literacy rates would have been lower, but a lot of them were writing home and were writing very frequently and in really vivid detail. A lot of them were from, a lot of the sailors captured were from New England, which obviously had higher literacy rates. Um, but still, I was surprised. I was also surprised to see that just, again, I came into this topic originally a few years ago, knowing very little about it. So I was surprised to see a group of captives of slaves writing so much, because that goes against a lot of what we think about in terms of what we think of American slavery. But it's a really interesting fact that the Barbary states actually encouraged their captives to write and to write back home, because doing so in their minds increased the chance that the United States would then ransom them. If they, the idea is if these captives drummed up sympathy for themselves, it would then drive the American public to pressure the government to then ransom the captives and pay the money that the Barbary states were asking. So it actually suited the interests of these, of the governments of the Barbary states to have the captives write home so much, which is, I found to be quite fascinating. You take us about 30, 35 years or so into the early 19th century, and there's a lot of shoes that drop in the course of that, those 30, 35 years you have, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution comes into effect, which bears all kinds of relevancy, that language about letters of mark and an authorization of privateering and such is is in the Constitution. But there's also a revolution that happens in France that 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 takes some time to sort itself out. There's uh, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. There's quite a bit of tectonic movement happening in the international space through those decades that um, seems like, you know, this is often one of these episodes that just we don't even really know. Very few people pay attention to. I mean, how is the this dynamic that you're describing fit into those broader movements? So I sort of view it the way that most Americans at the time viewed it, which is they saw the Barbary Wars and the larger Barbary crisis of Barbary Corsairs attacking their ships as fitting in, being a part of these larger forces. So, for example, most Americans took it as fact that the Barbary pirates were encouraged to attack their ships by the British. The British were instigating them to attacking. They were even Americans thought they were supplying the Barbary pirates with weapons. Some some Americans even thought the British were actually secretly piloting their ships and supplying sailors in disguise. And they thought this was done as a sort of revenge for the American Revolution or as a strategy to cramp American trade so that Britain could maintain dominance of the 
of the merchant marine world. Americans similarly thought that the British were doing so with Native Americans on the frontier, that they were supplying them with weapons in order to attack American settlers. Uh, so they saw this as being just part of this larger, larger world in which they're struggling again to maintain their independence against a hostile Great Britain. If you look at the Napoleonic Wars too, the and the Americans thought of the uh, Barbary Wars as just being a smaller part of that too. Even the War of 1812, Americans at the time really considered the Second Algerine War of 1815, in which they had to send the Navy against Algiers, they considered that as part of the War of 1812, because again, they considered that the British were instigating the Algerines to attack Americans as part of their larger strategy of war against the Americans. And so within literally two weeks of the War of 1812 ending, Americans send their navy against Algiers. So it's all part of these larger forces going on. And if you look at the French Revolutionary Wars, part of the reason that Barbary pirates became such a problem for Americans in the 1790s and early 1800s is that they're taking advantage, the Barbary pirates are taking advantage of the international chaos that's caused by these French Revolutionary Wars, where you have Europe's distracted, they're engaged in these large continental wars, you have now large unprotected merchant marines. Uh, the Americans try to fill that gap, that's uh, of that merchant gap now that Europe requires food and grain because of the war, they're not getting their normal sources. And so Americans send way more merchants to the Mediterranean to try to sell grain to the Europeans in the 1790s. And so the Barbary states are taking advantage of that. So all, all these, these tectonic movements, as you described, it's all connected. Yeah, it sounds too as though there there always seems to me a pretty reliable relationship historically. It's almost a trans-historical thing, like across time. It's a pattern you see all over the place where impetus to war is often impetus to state formation, state expansion, you know, and um, uh, uh, it would seem, you know, when you talk about sending over, Jefferson sending over warships in 1801, for example, I mean, somebody uh, who at least superficially had had this approach to statecraft that was supposed to be more minimalist. Now he's you know, sending warships overseas. I mean, is, 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 is that part of one of the effects that this has in the United States of America as well? Absolutely. In two ways. One, on a practical level, you're absolutely right that the Barbie Wars factor into the, the development of the American state. You have the adoption of the Constitution, which is partly at least inspired by fears that the Articles of Confederation are clearly inadequate if they're not able to protect American sailors from Barbary pirates. You also have the creation of the American Navy, which is explicitly created to defend American sailors from Barbary pirates. You then have the expansion of that Navy during the actual Barbie Wars themselves. But even at a, a sort of tangential, or I'd say more of a cultural level, when you're talking about state formation and the, and the formation of an, an American identity and, and the transition from a, sort of a colony, a colonial mindset into a national mindset, a lot of the rhetoric produced by Americans during and after the Barbary Wars describing their fight against the Barbary pirates uh, emphasizes the fact that Americans are different because we chose to fight the Barbary pirates rather than following the example of Europe, which was paying tribute and ransom. That was, that was the pattern that most European nations had followed ever since the, the late 1600s was instead of paying ransom, the Barbary states, each time they capture our sailors, we're just going to pay them yearly tribute. We'll, every year we'll send them some money, we'll send them some naval supplies, and in exchange, 
that state will agree to not attack any of our ships. That had become somewhat common practice, just accepted by Europe as the way business was done. So a lot of the rhetoric then produced by Americans in speeches and plays and novels set during the Barbie Wars, they often emphasize how, well, we Americans are different. Instead of following this tribute precedent sent by Europe that's degrading and humiliating, we chose to go to war. We were, you know, in the spirit of the revolution, we stood up for our liberties and we were different. One of the best examples of this is a, a play. It's a very short play written actually during the war with Tripoli. It's before the war's even over, but the this play is released, which already describes it as a victory. Um, and it takes place, it's a battle between an American ship and a Tripolitan ship during the war. And the storm comes and sweeps both ships up out of the Mediterranean, up the Atlantic, off the coast of England. And so the final, the final climactic battle takes place off the coast of England as English subjects are watching the fight and watching the Americans beat this Tripolitan ship. And so the, the message is, by fighting these Barbary pirates, we're not only standing up to Barbary, we're also showing Europe that we're a different kind of nation. Yeah, I think it's interesting. As rhetoric, you're using the term rhetoric, it's, it is it is effective. And I also think it's very true that at this time especially, but I think throughout U.S. history, Americans have different opinions about what it means to be American or what defines America. And I believe that your lecture does bring this out, the partisanship and all of this, that there are many conflicting ideas about what the nation should look like. Um, but do you think, what, why do you think Americans chose to go this route? Is it rhetoric or was there a reason? Is it hiding something else? You know, what, why do they go a different route, in your opinion? Well, what's interesting about that is ever since the first attacks in 1785, most Americans, at least rhetorically, wanted to go to war. They didn't want to pay tribute. It seemed to, the idea of paying ransom and tribute seemed to go against everything that their revolution stood for. The idea that we we fought, we were risk, you know, willing to die rather than be slaves to the British Empire. So to now then voluntarily, only a few years later, you know, become tribute to weaker, what they saw as weaker states and African states, seemed to go against everything that they fought their revolution for. They really had no choice in the 1790s because, as I mentioned in my lecture, the United States had no navy when these first Barbary attacks happened. Uh, so you, you even have someone like President Washington who agreed to pay tribute and ransom. But even he's saying privately, I find this really disagreeable. I don't like this, but there's really just no alternative. We have to do this. And then, of course, once the United States has a navy, they then send it to the Mediterranean in 1801. So I think there's always an argument amongst Americans, always an agreement, I should say, that if, if we could, we really should go to war for this. We should stand up for our rights. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, in fact, mm -hmm. is this, this revolutionary rhetoric. Right? We have to be willing to stand up for our liberty. That's what we fought a revolution for. We need to live by, those, by that creed. And so that's why you have a lot of the, the literature produced about the Barbary Wars and plays and poems that I was talking about. A lot of it emphasizes how the Barbary Wars are essentially a second American Revolution. They they compare it to yeah. Yeah. The, the heroes of 76. And so you have sometimes American theaters will put on two plays back to back. The first one will be about Bunker Hill or some battle of the revolution. And then the second one will be about a battle in the Barbary Wars. So they're, Americans are explicitly connecting these two events. And, and this is true in your research of both the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans, that this is something they do agree on. 
to a certain extent, yes. Federalists are more willing to say, yeah, this is really disagreeable that we're paying tribute, but we don't really have an option. Um, it just, and they would say it's just smart politics. That's something that John Adams says. He, he's like, mm-hmm. he tells Jefferson when they're debating what to do about this back in the 1780s, he said, yeah, I wish we could go to war with them. That'd probably be better, but we don't, that's not an option, right? I don't think we don't have a Navy. I don't think we could convince the American people to, to pay taxes to, to fund a Navy. So it's kind of a moot point. Why don't we just, we have bigger problems to worry about. Why don't we just, uh, you know, for now we'll pay tribute and we'll worry about it later. Where you really see the difference between Federalist and Democratic Republicans when it comes to the debate over the Barbie Wars is how much role common Americans should have in setting government policy. Mm-hmm. So Jeffersonian Republicans in the 1790s, they start encouraging ordinary citizens to fundraise for the captives, to form uh, communities, to then protest and, and uh, petition the government to be more assertive in freeing the captives. And Federalists in the Washington administration and the Adams administration push back and say, you know, this isn't your job. You elected us to govern. Now let us govern. And so there's a somewhat controversial moment in, I want to say, 1794 when Congress is debating. Mm-hmm. We pay tribute. We build a Navy. They actually shut the Capitol building and they close it and hold a secret session because they don't want any news leaking out to the American public out of fear that then that news will get back to the Barbary states that they're discussing ransom. They want to keep these negotiations secret. And so some Jeffersonians in Congress get really upset at this. And you have this debate very early on in American history over, you know, is government secrecy okay? How much role should common people have in forming policy? Um, we see it already back in you know, the, the first administration. I think it's interesting because, I mean, what where my question's going is kind of thinking about how over time war, as you say, you know, it, it could be a moment where different parties come together, it could split people apart, but that the definition or or this construction of an external enemy, you know, someone that is demonized and or an internal enemy, whether that's a racialized, marginalized group, you know, that helps to bring together um, different opinions amongst the white male elites, for instance. And I, I think that's an important thread that um, your talk made me think about. So I wanted to mention that in the Q&A and, and see what you thought about that. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. I'm glad that you mentioned external and internal enemies because it's one of the fascinating uh, aspects of reading writings produced during the Barbary Wars about the Barbary states and the Barbary people. A really common thread you see is that white Americans are comparing the Barbary people to Native Americans really constantly. They 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 say that they have the same sort of tawny skin color. They have the same sort of uh, it's, same sort of level of civilization development, where they're not you know they're below the what they viewed as the civilized European and American nations. Um, they're both essentially checking the march of progress by, in the case of Barbary pirates, by attacking commercial ships. In the case of Native Americans, by attacking settlers who are trying to bring civilization and progress to the American West. So you get a lot of newspapers describing how Barbary pirates, when they attack, they give the war whoop, just like Native Americans, or um, you hear uh, Americans describe the Barbary rulers as sachems or chiefs, things like that. And so I think there's a, there's a real connection in Americans' minds between Native Americans and Barbary people. And so I would even say that in some ways, 
when Americans are describing the Barbary pirates as as being like Native Americans and being barbarous and checking help you know checking the march of civilization and progress, they're kind of justifying then westward expansion and the colonization of the American West. They're seeing it as two sides of this of the same coin, really. Great. Well, thank you so much, um, Matthew, for speaking with us about your um, research. I think that um, it's been very interesting for us and for the audience out there. As you know, this is an OAH podcast. And so um, we're thinking that the listeners out there are fellow historians, members of the OAH. But we also hope that this podcast um, shed some light on what we as historians do to the general public. And part of what we do, as you know, is travel around uh, the country and the world um, on archival visits. And so now that you've um, finished the Q&A session, we thought we would end on a lighter note and ask you um, if you could share with us your most memorable meal on an archival visit or while you were on the road, just to give people the sense of the adventures that we all have as we're doing our research? That's a fun question. Uh, my answer would be actually go way back to my undergraduate experience. I took a class at my undergrad institution on the history of food in America, which is a fantastic class. Really, really interesting. Forced me to look at food very, very differently and its cultural significance and uh, one of the aspects of the class was we took a trip to a small archive at a community church. We looked at the sources they had there, which was a really great experience. That was my first time being in an actual archive. I remember it very vividly. And then we went right afterwards to the house of the professor, and we all brought foods to share amongst all of us, ideally from whatever your you know cultural background came from, your family's recipes and whatnot. Um, and we all shared it. And the idea was to really emphasize this point of how important food is to culture, right? Especially in some places like the United States, where citizens come from so many different cultures and backgrounds. Food is a really important way to, to uh, of how we hold on to our cultural identity. So I remember that meal being uh, like, what a great way as a teacher to show that to the class right after we visited this archive. We saw it in the archive and then we saw it in real life. Um, and it, it just, you know, it was a really early experience for me teaching me that research can be fun and it can it can have uh, applications in our in our normal day to day lives. All right. Well, Matthew Getz, I want to thank you again for joining us for the work you've contributed here and bring it with the audience. I think it's going to uh, impress and excite a lot of people. Thank you again, Matthew Getz. And that's a wrap for this week. Next time, we'll be welcoming a new guest lecturer to the show, so please tune in. We'll look forward to catching you then.